Hello, welcome back. I'm Reed Smith. I'm Charlie Coast. I'm Asher Maxwell. I'm Ryan Estrin. I'm Gene Herman. And you're listening to 440 Views from the Hill. Episode of 440 Views of the Hell, and we will be closing with a discussion of Roe versus the, well, I guess the leaked opinion overturning Roe versus Wade and its impact on the court. Then we will be discussing the direction of democracy in the United States. So, um, I think a few weeks ago, maybe last month, something like that, the uh, well, there was a leaked opinion from the Supreme Court. Um, that was written by one of the very, very conservative judges who said that uh, they were intended to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the decision that, provi- that um, has guaranteed a right to an abortion in the Constitution. So the decision is obviously monumental and the ethics of abortion are incredibly complicated. Uh, and controversial, et cetera, et cetera. We will not get into that today because we would be here forever and uh, none of us want that. Instead, we are just going to discuss two aspects of this, really the legal reasoning behind the decision and um, then kind of what we think um, its impact on the court will be going forward, how will it, uh, what impact it will have on the legitimacy of the court, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we'll start by going to Ryan to um, discuss uh, he'll kind of explain uh, Justice Leader's opinion and where he disagrees. All right. Uh, yeah. So, like, if you read through this opinion, it talks a lot, of, or not me, but sort of the summary through it and what this talks about. It's 98 pages. I'm lazy. Um, Our focus around, like, the main rule overruling is around, like, what rights can be held under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, because it says some rights obviously are not expressly put, it, put, it in the, put into the Constitution, but are still protected under it anyway. Alito's conclusion basically says that we need to preserve any right that's protected needs to be deep rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept order of in the in the concept of ordered liberty. So this sort of says that because abortion is a newer thing in terms of legalization and the court sort of preempted states to some extent on it, even though it was actually legal in a lot of states. And going back to the original decision, you can see that the evidence he uses here is kind of shaky. Um, it talks about just like abortion generally throughout history and he says it's been illegal forever he cites these uh, I forget the authors I think one of them is Cook maybe that are like literally from and like rulers from the English common law they're in like the 1500s 1600s like so he's going back to a very long time to try and point this out there's a few issues this is one is if you look towards Harry Blackman's original decision uh, for Roe which he wrote it talks about how in the United States, it took about 30 years for really any laws to exist about about abortion. And even then, there was really no prosecution on like the way in which we think of like the new laws today until like the 1900s, which shows that at least it was like generally accepted existence of abortion. And in addition to that, a lot of other things are protected effectively in the same manner. So this like case sets up things like uh, contraceptions to be no longer cons- constitutionally protected interracial marriage, gay marriage, just like equal access to civil uh, civil rights. A lot of things like that are no longer, it allows for that that sort of protection to be eroded, which is obviously a bad thing that like 
that shows just sort of this is policy making like making that choice to interpret the constitution that way is an explicitly political action that effectively Alito is making by writing the decision in this way it is not some like deep-rooted textualist interpretation it's just him arbitrarily deciding a line so conservative agendas can be achieved yes uh another important aspect of this is um as ryan explained alita's opinion kind of rested on the fact that uh when a when roe was decided it it has not become the set of law in the land in the sense that people have not kind of just accepted it as a, a fact of of the united states that um Roe is is going to exist and it's become kind of a controversy. The problem with that argument is that if you look at past cases that were monumental in expanding American civil rights, such as Brown versus Board of Education and other uh, cases regarding civil rights, those were incredibly controversial cases that set off uh, equally um, uh, contentious political movements as the movements that uh, resulted from Roe. And yet that does not justify us reversing the Brown versus Board of Education decision or uh, you know, changing the civil rights decisions just because there's backlash to rule. The Supreme Court's job is much more focused on the legal reasoning behind it. And um, you know, obviously uh, abortion is not a right explicitly granted in the Constitution, but as many Supreme Court justices have written, um, the, there is a certain implied right there to privacy, which would obviously expand uh, to something like abortion. Um, yeah, it's an issue of bodily autonomy, and restricting that is like, obviously, the right to privacy and generally body auton- bodily autonomy are both like, obviously things that should exist, like bodily autonomy is necessary for gender equality. Which the gender equality argument is a whole another thing we can talk about in a second, uh, but effectively like restricting that is obviously like one of the largest fundamental restrictions that can be had on a person. And the sort of the other part of which sort of gender equality that comes up here is that there's another argument made that it should be protected under equal like protection clauses, which they dismiss through the citing of a case that says women could be abor- uh, women could be fired uh, for being pregnant. Uh, which was uh, Congress passed a law so that was no longer the case. But the t- so that's sort of the constitutional backing they're using to argue that like this shouldn't be protected under the First Amendment either, which is sort of an old like liberal debate and sort of shows that a lot of liberals are not willing to actually fight for these issues and just sort of have weird legal ideas instead of understanding this as a political action. Uh, and the other things that are like worth noting about this is the language that these sort of documents use uses things like the phrase abortionists a ton. It uh, refers to like. It never refers to like fetuses as fetuses very frequently. It starts when it was referring to the law as unborn human beings, which is obviously a political term like that has no scientific or legal backing. Um, so it's these sort of like things that have been put in here that are deeply political statements that like obviously demonstrate this is like an action that needs to be not viewed for as like it, it should help to show the court is an illegitimate institution. Mm-hmm. And at the end, on that note, at the end of the day, this really should not have been an issue left to the courts. I, you know, you think it, um, basically, it should it should be an issue that is allowed to be addressed democratically at the federal level. And there is an, a, a majority of Americans who believe that at least early on in a pregnancy, Americans have a right to an abortion. And so, if our institutions, such as Congress um, and the presidency, were more responsive to public opinion and more uh, democratic. Uh, in the, the simplest sense of the word, then we would have, um, you know, a, the, the, these questions settled at a federal level. It just speaks to the kind of the failing institutions of our democracy that uh, it has to be settled in the courts where it really does not belong. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, it should be resolved by legislature, which like the Democrats inability to do anything is obviously demonstrating their general like, I mean, obviously the political realities are that they can't do much, but even still like the idea that we're just supposed to go vote every two years is not an effective like political strategy when the conservatives have basically only won since Roe and that's continued since like, What, what do you mean by that? In terms of, like, political organizing, like, the liberal project effectively, not because of Roe, but, like, there's a point in time in the 70s where you really see the liberal project start to diminish and the conservative project that really exists around Roe. Like, yeah, and as well as, like, all prior, like, Supreme Courts of, like, all the Warren Court into, I forget what court this was, but... Are you speaking Ro. about the liberal project and the conservative project in the context of Roe? No, I'm thinking, speaking of them just generally, like... Okay. Since then, the liberal project has not succeeded. Like, name a point at well, the time where the liberal it's project been all, it's succeeded. waning. It's waning. It has not stopped. With, like, no, but the, the liberal project has no stated policy. Like, it's just, like, conservatives have focused on, like, we need to overturn Roe. It's a agenda-driven thing. You ask liberal, like, congresspeople, and not, like, the left, even some of the better ones, like, they're basically just like, uh, we don't really have a specific agenda. We just like good governance. All right. Well, that's just good. That's just patently false. No, that's it's just also, exactly true. It's also ironic that you bring that up when there were the cons- conservative movement, quote unquote, literally failed to update their platform for 2020. OK, so it's not true that Republicans are somehow the ones that are more focused. You're on- right that the conservatives obviously didn't update your platform like the Republican Party. But like the project for Republicans has been explicitly stated political goals uh, and the, attempting to like. Overturn Roe is like the main thing. All right, there's a this is this is almost a comically bad argument. No, it's not. The liberal progressive, the liberal progressive movement. You, let's call them progressives for one. I can also talk about liberals. I'd be happy to do so. The progressive movement actually has a stated objective of what it means to be a progressive. You're which right talks about things like expanding healthcare, addressing eco- economic inequality by implementing. Okay, you're right. Wealthy, but are you trying cetera, to tell me that Pelosi's is good at articulating that kind of stuff? What you, as so, like so in general? You the, so you seem to be saying that th- not the liberal project because that's d- distinct. The Democratic Party is one does not have a coherent. The policy. Democratic Party is the only thing that articulates liberalism in the United well, States. Well, that's not true. There are numerous think tanks at the elite yeah okay yeah. I'm sorry I policy. forgot the Brookings are, Institute that really brings people to the polls that the Brookings Institute I literally I'm sorry at the electoral level <laughs> there are plenty of institutions that articulate a liberal vision uh, you know I mean, I don't even know where to start, how I can define this, but political action committees, democratic parties, or in state level committees, there is a liberal electoral movement in the United States with articulated goals. You're right, there, okay. To some extent, I agree that there is obviously an existence of like a liberal movement, but I think the idea that like, in terms of a, okay, this is maybe something I should have articulated sooner, but a coherent judicial philosophy does not exist, where you've seen conservatives spend you're right. Liberals have focused more on the electoral end. Conservatives focus very heavily, and I think you'll agree with me, maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong, on the court. And they did this with things like the Federalist Society, which is a very highly organized and effective institution. They did these things like textualism and originalism, which are just complete you're political doctrines. They're political doctrines. You're following for this classic fallacy in politics where you just assume your opponents are masterminds and that everyone... All right, we've listened to the Ezra Klein podcast. I understand that. But they continue... I don't appreciate the ad hominem attacks. No, you're... It's not like I'm assuming that conservative. It's just like, are you trying to tell me that, like, in terms of judicial, like, how does the Supreme Court exist as it currently exists? I'm saying, I'm saying, of like a I'm saying, general effort by conservatives to like 
a control this sort of unit. I mean, you're right. There are obviously liberal law professors that are making arguments, but like the Federalist Society as an organization is clearly. A you're right. You are making a clearly like observable claim. I- I'm just saying you cannot like just assert that the liberal movement has failed doing so when. It's not like there's this committee committee that meets and decides what the liberal movement will do just because that is not. Okay, you're right. I'm obviously using vague, like, general terminology because my point is, like, as, like, political movements, which are, you're right, decentralized things, as a goal of progressivism, there are some key instances where progressivism, like, succeeded. I would agree. Like, gay marriage is a very obvious one of those. Um, But on the whole... You've seen conservatives continually win legal battles, and to the extent to where they like liberals have done well, it's on like the gay marriage issue, which is like right. obviously a very so important for a lot of people. But it's not the same as like totally overturning right or Roe or just like expanding gay marriage but not protecting gay people in any other way. What do you think the solutions? Uh, well, I think there's a lot of solutions, and it's hard to say that. Like, I think liberals need a more coherent political organization. And you're rolling your eyes at me for this one. But, like, and you're going to say those exist. But if the way in which conservative organizing happens, it's a more, like, like, the party operates stronger. Like, obviously, the Republican Party, and like, they're willing to threaten primaries, force candidates to like, sort of deal with whips um, in a way that, like, Democrats don't necessarily do. You also see a lot of, I think you see a lot more turn to institutional respect from Democrats. Like, do you, would you say Democrats tend to uh, like respect and endorse the institution more than a Republican does? Yes. Okay, but the the issue with the way they do that is like there's things like in the for instance on the on the court level there's a there's basically a, a thing in the Senate where if the senator's home state puts in a little like slip or whatever it means basically yeah, the they get slips. a veto the blue slips thank you um, d- Democrats are not the are for the past under Trump they did not like care about it at all when Democrats would send them. And under Biden, they're continuing to do that on the circuit court level, but not the district court level. Things like that, where we're allowing the courts to continue to become more conservative, and meanwhile, not ha- articulating clear, like, I would say the li- like liberals have a very, and maybe you can give me a point here, and I, I have an articulation of how it should be. It should be like expanding rights to like fulfill what the ideas of the Constitution are. But I think it, when you have like conservative textualism, like articulated, it's articulated much stronger. And that's why you see so many liberal justices literally like, to some extent, agree that like parts of Roe under the Fourteenth Amendment aren't effective. Not just yeah. I, no, I, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that. Sorry. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like there is kind of a conservative ideological hegemony um, in the judicial system. One hundred percent. I actually, I think that the, this decision um, might spark kind of a, a grassroots effort at building. An yeah, I hope it does. That would be a good thing. Yes. Um, I mean, so coming out of a bad thing. Let's kind of move on to the discussion of what we think the impact will be on the court as an institution in the United States. I, I think I hear a lot of discussion about how this will affect the legitimacy of the court, but I think that kind of gets abstracted and people just take that to mean something without actually articulating what, how, how, you know, how we measure it or not even that, but how it affects the court. So I'm interested to hear, Ryan, what you think is does legitimacy act as a limiting factor to the court? Like, does the court need legitimacy? Does the court need legitimacy? Probably. Um, like, it can't be totally... Like, I, I obviously think that, like, to some extent, the court should be delegitimized. I don't support accelerating that. Like, I don't support overturning Ray to Roe, or sorry, not Ray, Roe, to further delegitimize the court. Because at the end of the day, I think the court is, like, 
an illegitimate elite like dictatorial institution like the, if you look at like countries that like have supreme the basically the closest thing to the power of the supreme court as in the united states is like literally the iranian court system which is yeah. like, based on islamic law which i think generally like we're not attempting to have a similar political organization to yeah well Iran's ironically it seems like the Supreme Court in the United States is trying to profess a Christian national. Yes, it's in, in many ways very similar to that. Like, Well, I mean, there's certainly cases where the court is a good thing. Do you disagree with that completely? No, I've yeah. talked about extensively how the Warren Court is like a very good example of a period of time where lots of good decisions were made. I think a few things should be noted about almost all these decisions. Almost all of them, not all of them, but a lot of them overturned previous decisions. Like Roe is obviously a good decision. Like I endorse Roe. I think it's probably how like if you do want to read into a constitution which so, fundamentally I don't know if it should or not it's an issue of like you need to like do things like expand bro which is a, obviously something that needs to be protected bodily autonomy so, is very important sorry so how does a court without legitimacy expand Roe? that's what we're asking is how do you think legitimacy it does legitimacy act as kind of a constraining factor on the court's ability to operate. Well, obviously, they have to be legitimate. Well, well other why? Because let's, 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 let's if they are not legitimate, other out. institutions do not respond to them. Okay. Yeah, and I think so do you think that the decline but, in legitimacy from the Roe versus Wade ruling, first of all, do you agree that the Roe yes, versus Wade? Yes, all right, that's, probably. Okay. Do you think that that will have a noticeable, meaningful material effect on the Supreme Court's ability to kind of do other things? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, then See, we can I think this that. is. I think the one issue here, and maybe Asher, you'll disagree with me, and this is very back to our other conversation about liberals not organizing as well. Do you think, like, I know you sort of think that, like, this might spawn a political movement. Like, how do you, do you think that's, like, a likely thing to happen as sort of a backlash and, like, more advocating well, for court when, backing, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's a good question. When you look at kind of political psychology, one thing that you notice as just a true fact is that what really gets people going, what really gets their giddy, is when you try to take something away that you've given them, right? People don't even get, people aren't excited by being given things. They just assume they deserve it. But when you try to take something away from them, that is what really lights them on fire. It's the reason why Democrats in 2018 ran on attempts to repeal the ACA and why Republicans in 2010 ran on um, attempts to supposedly take away, you know, health liberty or whatever. Um, but the point is that- Interestingly, the same issue from opposite Yeah, sides. exactly, which is just to get you how irrational people are. Um, but I, in that sense, I do think that this instance, like Roe versus Wade would not have set off a political movement to the extent that reversing Roe versus Wade will. Does that make I, sense? I, that, I think that it's hard sense. to say that because I think in my mind, and maybe we just disagree on the history of the conservative movement in the United States, like it's relatively hard to say that like basically the entire reinvention of conservatism, like this will be bigger than that. But I'm also just very skeptical that like liberals will go far enough in like actually have effective political organizing because obviously you are seeing on the left like movements for like endorsing court packing, potentially, you know, there's discussions of what you should and should it be judicial review, um, just like sort of those kind of things. And but at the same time, I feel like and just because Democrats and liberals tend to want to like not challenge institutions to some level, they will just sort of take it and be like, oh, well, I guess you should just like try and vote again in two years. Like, it's opposed to conservatives who have spent decades doing tons of 
legal scholarship, money, like fundraising, all this stuff around like these specific issues. And I just think there's a lot harder. So I, I don't think that Roe will set off a reinvention of liberalism and a reinvention of uh, progressive politics in the United States. I do, however, think that it could set off the kind of things you're discussing, which is like movements uh, around abortion in particular. Yeah, I would hope that would happen. I'm yeah. just skeptical that it will. Okay. Well, I think this is a good uh, well, transition. Oh, you yeah. I mean, I think the big thing about the legitimacy is like what other standing doctrines are at risk now. Beyond, yeah, right. beyond the right to privacy, oh, there are other right standing doctrines that the Supreme Court relies on for their lower courts to also rule on. How does that affect those other doctrines? Because the lower courts may think those doctrines are next to change. Yeah, you definitely have a point there that like this sort of limited reading of like due process does allow for that. And also when you start to see like conservatives try and challenge, like there's a chance that and with some of these laws that states are passing that basically say like, you're not allowed to leave states. Like that's challenging doctrines for like interstate commerce and travel, which protects people who like go to another state and like do something that's legal in one state, but not another, which is a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, um, I- yeah. Like those all that opens up a whole new pathway, but you're right. It obviously will have some effect on current doctrine. Like this is the biggest departure, I feel like. Or I mean, this has been what's been happening since the Roberts Court and before, but uh yeah, it's like a it's the most notable thing. People a lot of people thought even if abortion's totally gone, effectively Roe will remain, which is stupid because it's even if it's in name only, like we need to protect abortion, not a random court case. But at the end of the day, like yeah, this is a very big departure. You're right. It probably will affect things. Well, I mean, it also affects how uh, you're right about how it changes the legitimacy of the court with other institutions. I don't think they necessarily ignore court decisions, but they they may pass laws respond like in the opposite direction of court opinions. Yeah, I mean that's the ideal. But I think what you'd also see and people liberals don't really talk about that much is like even if the like cons- Democrats got through a national abortion protection law. There's a very good chance that that would be constitutionally challenged by conservatives. Like it would be. And there's a very strong chance the court would, as they've continued to do, because conservatives are the judicial, these conservative justices are making policy. Like they are effectively not sitting back and reading their best. They're the same as a Congress. They're the same as a Congress. And they're writing effectively. It, it's very similar to legislation. I mean, not in the way it is, but the way it results. And they would just overturn that law. Well, challenge it, Charlie, if you say... Well, I mean, I guess... I, I would say, like, I, I don't, like, disagree with Roe or anything, but there were people that, when Roe was, like, originally, like, passed, there were people who claimed that it was legislation. That yeah, it, it was almost no, legislation itself. Claim that. That's but, the reason that a lot of Democrats say that yeah. you should... Or a lot of, like, liberal uh, judicial scholars have said you should protect um, under, like, the First Amendment equal protection, which... Alito dismisses in a single paragraph, um, which is proof that it's not like better arguments. It's proof that the issue here is uh, is a political one, and yeah. the, the conservatives are good. Sorry, yeah. both sides are effectively doing policy making. Mm-hmm. My argument is we should do it for good, not bad, because we need to just like conservative. In, in my view, we need to protect abortion, mm-hmm. yeah. and liberals should protect as many rights as possible. Um. That requires a progressive view of legal interpretation. Just as much arbitrary and policymaking as the conservative textualist one, it's just a different one, and my opinion is it's a one that liberals should focus on instead of talking about institutional legitimacy. Well, this gets into another issue, and I, I will play conservative advocate or devil's advocate, whichever one you want to say it. Not saying, <laughs> well, not equating the two, I'm just trying to use the phrase. Um, 
Ryan, a lot of the conservative response would be something along the lines of, well, the Supreme Court's job is to protect the Constitution and to ensure that laws are abiding by the Constitution. In no port in the Constitution does it say women have a right to an abortion. At no point in the Constitution does it even explicitly say that we have a right to privacy. Yeah. Why is it acceptable for the court to act as this active actor? What? Not active actor. What's the word? Um, judicial, act, judicial activism. Judicial yeah. activist uh, interpretations to kind of create rights that aren't in the Constitution. So, and just before we go, I want to... This is not this your is opinion. not my opinion. Yes, I was literally about to say, Asher, when I answer this question, and if I like yell or whatever this is not your opinion I'm aware of that so I think a good way to respond to this is to turn to what Bork said during his uh, confirmation trial, confirmation hearings and he's a very influential conservative like scholar he and, got borked though yeah he did get borked uh, he on the, during those confirmation hearings they ask him about the Ninth Amendment the idea that there's rights not enumerated in the Constitution he describes it as a blotch like it's basically he says oh. as the strict textualist he is he says oh but you can ignore that one part like it's proof that what these conser- these conservative choices they aren't being done and like the reality of limiting an interpretation of what only the Constitution says you can't read things into it they do it all the time the First Amendment if you want to see where conservatives are obviously doing that look at how every time they protect like religious rights what, like you know the gay marriage cakes like that's for, like no these people just hate gay people like they don't have religious reasons to not like make a bake a cake or help gay people they just don't want to help gay people because they are bigoted like it's not some like and then the court protects that under the first amendment which is just expanding religious liberty like obviously you've seen the same thing happen with masks recently like it's very much the second amendment they read in a right to bear arms that did not exist until recently and the conservative movement kind of created it out of out of thin air there was a right to a militia certainly not a right to just blanket bear arms and my point isn't whether that's even good or bad in that case my point is just that it's fundamentally a policy decision that they're making through what they can claim or not is like a super intense legal doctrine that has super strict readings or who cares. It's policy no different than what liberals make when they decide Brown v. Board, when they decide uh, all the way up through Roe and all these very important cases. And if you look at what these conservatives' vision is articulating, it's a pre-civil rights era. In a lot of ways, the reason that these people turn to, like in this court is a great example. The, the 14th, they need to be long established like ideas. Well, women's rights are not very long established to expand to them, yet we expanded the rights no, of women. No rights that yes. have been expanded no. are well established. It's, no, almost at all. Like, it fundamentally, returning to only well established rights and reading into them is the right for white guys to have property, property, and property, which is the <laughs> liberty, li- life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, <laughs> um, and there's not much else. Yeah. I, I think I would like to move on because this will be a perfect transition to the democracy discussion. Does anybody have anything else they add to Roe in the court? I think I have one question kind of for you guys. So right. how do we move on from here? How do we make the court into well, a beneficial Well, that is kind of what I want to go to next because yeah. I think there's not any hope. I So do you um, just scratch the court? Really? No, well, I, I don't... If I were to redo just uh, the U.S. Uh, Constitution obviously would look very differently. I could imagine and dream all day about the world I want to live in and the democracy I want to live in. Unfortunately, neither Ryan nor I will be rewriting any constitutions anytime soon. Unfortunately. Yes, I think Ash and I both agree. So I think even. But though, can I just close my thought before yeah, you? Yeah, sorry, I thought you were. Finished. Yeah, sorry, that's my bad. 
Um, my point is that we should look at what is possible yeah, and what, what, what kind of we can change on the margins, not to what we can... Yeah, I think yeah. we both agree, like, I, we maybe disagree to the extent to which, like, an advisory court versus judicial review is good or bad, but we can both agree that we think, like, the main focus should be, I think, when we, I've had this, we've had this long discussion over a clear articulation of legal scholarship for liberals to make and this sort of policy idea, and I think that's what needs to be done. Like, I think we both probably agree. Creating a movement and a revision around a directed vision to protect rights under our current Supreme Court, the way the Supreme Court works, which is way too powerful, in my opinion, is the best option. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Charlie? It does. Yeah. All right. I'm glad we could help. Um, let's move on to the democracy segment. So this is really, um, I, I just want to kind of lay the groundwork for where I see our current democracy and then just see where everybody else kind of differs. So we are at this moment uh, where there is accelerating polarization that is having kind of corrosive effects on democracy and they'll compile with some other things I'm going to explain in a second to create really, really a dangerous situation. So we see things like uh, geographic sorting and um, regional sorting where liberals are living in one area and conservatives live in another. We're also seeing kind of cultural polarization and all sorts of other polarization where basically there are two Americas. There's a liberal America. There's a conservative America. There's a very strict idea of what liberals believe and behave and how they behave. And there's a strict idea of the other one. Um, this kind of results in a, a lot of problems because there's not a lot of, uh, you know, th there really only are two sides. There's not a lot of movement between the two. Conservatives are locking in um, a kind of control of institution of political institutions in the United States through things like gerrymandering, which has given them control at the local level and allowed them to kind of secure their majorities in Congress and through the natural effects of just the fact that the Senate is biased against uh, rural and small areas and small states, and those are increasingly becoming Republican. So what this all means is that essentially, despite the fact that the majority of Americans generally vote for Democrats, or more than generally, almost always vote for Democrats, that the majority of Americans have liberal views on policy, almost objectively. Conservatives are at a moment where they are about, after this election, to fully secure uh, all the political institutions in the United States for a very long time, not because they are more popular, but because through kind of their own attempts to, to seize control of institutions and kind of natural polarization, they have um, control. The, the other issue here is that there is a continued uh, push on the right to just kind of disregard democracy uh, for the sake of political power. And you will look, there are multiple instances of this. Let's just take uh, one very specifically. Pennsylvania Republicans just nominated Doug Mastriano to be their candidate for governor. He will likely win just because it is a midterm year uh, under a, a Democratic presidency and Republicans have uh, the momentum behind them to carry them to victories in swing areas. So let's say what was most likely to happen, he wins. He not only not only led Republicans' attempts to overturn the 2020 elections, but it has said he will willingly do so again. We are looking at a situation in which 2024, either uh, Biden could win the Electoral College, he could win enough votes in the states to count to, to 270, and there would be enough Republican legislators and governors who refuse to acknowledge that victory that there would be no way to see Biden as president. We would be in a constitutional crisis 
the likes of which has never, ever come anywhere close in the United States. It would be absolutely catastrophic. Except that time a bunch of states seceded from the Union. Yes, exactly. The, the Civil War. The last time <laughs> we were in this bad situation, we were in the Civil War. And I know everyone is going to think I am being hyperbolic. But the reason is, is because you're not paying attention. It is way worse than you realize. If you pay attention to who Republicans are choosing to nominate for secretary of state positions to people who run elections in the states and who is actually winning, there is an insurrectionist anti, uh, well, insurrectionist might be strong, but an anti um, kind of a democracy coalition that has enough power in the states to uh, pose fatal effects to our democracy. And where I see us in 10 years is living in a the beginnings of an, um, uh, a, a fraud democracy similar to where Hungary lives, which is that a minority of Americans in the United States will have their opinions represented by a continued uh, uh, conservative con- controlled institutions, uh, which will be catastrophic. Their goals are very clear. We look at the states where they have unchecked power now, including in our own state, where they pretty much have no ability to hold them accountable. And uh, they are egregiously and aggressively attacking the rights of people that they don't see as uh, part of uh, their society and their culture. And it is having uh, horrible, horrible, disgusting consequences uh, for a lot of people. All right. Yeah, I think I mostly agree with Asher. I don't know if he was trying to say there was. I think he was not trying to say there was going to be a civil war, but it kind of sounded like that. I don't think. That's no, I don't case. think there's going to be a civil war. I think we're going to, as I said, going to be in like a hungry like. Yeah, I think you're. And right. I should explain that. So Hungary you is are. a uh, a kind of failing democracy in Eastern Europe. It is controlled by a Christian nationalist uh, quasi dictator named Viktor Orban, and they consistently win yes. elections that are actually held, even though. They kind of use their power to continue. Although their power. they would also probably win the elections anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's similar to Putin. Yes, exactly. A little bit more democratic. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I think what you see is I think you're mostly right, Asher. That like ultimately we're seeing like a clear like in the U.S. like liberal backsliding. Like this Roe decision is a key instance of that. Uh, and generally, just like conservatives are like not don't care about institutions, and I don't really care. I can get into my sort of opinions on institutions as well. But at the end of the day, like. Preserving liberalism is better than a descent into like, like effectively what like this conservative wants, which especially around Trump and DeSantis and these sort of people, you see this like semi corporatist vision being articulated, uh, and around in the United States, which is just like kind of like romanticism for the past combined with like this sort of like. You know, reject the bankers, reject the elites, reject the real estate. So it's still like this like weird class of people that should be like excised, but then there should be solidarity like across all of society, top down. Like it's not a class issue. It's like there's the us, which is somewhat class based, and then there's the, like the bad people in the liberal coastal cities that are running the banks and doing international finance. Um, and I think that's sort of the vision that people like Trump and so on are pushing forward, which sort of allows them to garner like working class and sort of people who would traditionally appeal to like more social democratic or even what we had in the 60s or 50s in terms of labor and union protection and stuff like that. Um, so what ultimately happens is you have that developing on one side. At the same time, the United States is sort of as in economic order slipping backwards. Like uh, you've seen sort of like Yanis Verkafis or Jody Dean have talked a lot about the idea of like techno or neo-feudalism 
um, which is sort of this, like, if you look at how the economy is being restructured with things like Uber and Lyft and, like, these sort of, like, 1030 or 1099 contract workers, you're seeing a kind of return to not even traditional, like, state layer capitalism, but it's, like, more aggressive, more taking from workers, more deeply exploitative, and a more aggressive and, like, direct way. What you see in this sort of developing techno-feudalist and corporatist order, I think, like, it's affecting the political system. It's eroding democratic institutions. You're seeing people like Peter Thiel who are like think like the 19th Amendment was terrible and like a clear instance of why you can't have capitalism with democracy. Like he's a terrible person. He's like leading huge candidates like um, J.D. Vance or uh, Blake Masters. Blake Masters. Right? Blake Masters. And what you see are these faux populists who say like, oh, I want to protect the family. And when you talk to them about doing that, it's not even like childcare, social security, like and it, or like making it so you can live on one income. When he talks about that, it's like one tax program. It's all this stuff that will not actually fix, cause their populist vision. It's just like, like even more like traditional corporatist and fascist would be like, yeah, we'll at least give you something. But these forms of populist are so hollow and so culture war based, which is another obvious issue within the United States. This extreme focus on culture war. Uh, and what you see with that extreme, like, you lose political organization and all of these become like this politics of pure culture. Uh, and it doesn't allow for effective, like... Altruism. No, not effective altruism. Effective... Not effective altruism. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about effective altruism. Let's not talk about effective altruism ever. You see this political order and this sort of culture war, politics, and all these things. I, I've talked a lot about... But ultimately, this is all articulated vision of an anti-democratic state being developed. Liberals are completely feckless to challenge it. They need to also be challenging institutions, questioning their legitimacy, figuring out how we can further develop democracy, both within like a more traditional liberal sense, but also beyond that and expanding it to more like workplace democracy and other like very important ways to create a more equitable order that is also more generally democratic. And yeah, that's the main position of the world that I see. Um, so I agree that polarization is probably at its worst point ever, but I don't necessarily agree that it's going to uh, cause the collapse of what we now see as the democratic institutions of the United States. I mean, what Asher was talking about is Republican nominees, but they, I mean, there's lots of people in GOP who are uh, who stood up against that once it once the votes ended up happening, and also there are people in the GOP now who are trying. Uh, to prevent that from happening, especially in Pennsylvania, where the GOP has spoken out against uh, their nominee, their no, that's not no, that's, that's not the just, way. To that's say not it. actually that off. But no, no, no. They, there are people in the GOP in Pennsylvania who okay, said, they tried to stop him and they failed. Now they've endorsed him. So yeah, well, like right when Trump endorsed them, they were like, "This is bad." Yes, and they were like, "Oh, yeah, we might lose. Let's get this other election." But like they made they they. There are a lot of people in the GOP who will not necessarily back a coup or whatever Asher's trying to say that's going to happen within. You so can say the problem end, with that, I just don't like. The problem with that argument is that it doesn't account for the direction of the GOP is going in. Like right now, you might be act, you might be not act, correct. Might be correct that um, there is a, a faction with political power in the GOP that is not a, a pro coup, but the truth is that they are losing. And they are losing very badly in the uh, race to control the future of the Republican Party. If you look at the uh, House Republicans, 
who voted to certify the election results or voted uh, to impeach Trump. The ones who voted to impeach Trump are almost all gone. The ones who voted to certify the election are losing. The candidates in open GOP races who determine the future of the party are only winning if they say they think the election was stolen and if they make that a huge issue. And they are looking to do the exact same thing in 2024 that they attempted in 2020. The difference is this time they will be organized and they will be uh, much more politically powerful. Yeah, the the issue is that and what Ash was getting to, and I think I sort of in the way where politics sort of come out at this angle, like yeah, obviously the world like the the conservatives at the end of the day, like one of the main things that allows this sort of corporatist dictatorial appeal to work is to, appealing to like classical ideas of like you need to protect your culture you need to defend against like the other which is like at the end of the day I think most Republicans and conservatives will sign on to doing that in the face of what they've become convinced is Marxism. Asher I think I mean I think we can all agree on the direction that democracy is going um, especially as a result of polarization but what do you think is actually causing all this polarization and how can we actually fix it at the root i kind of think there are natural cycles of polarization in the united states where there are instances where we have a lot or we have low polarization well i'm going to get to my answer in instances where we have really bad polarization for example the gilded age of terrible polarization with the era of good feelings had low polarization what's making this different is really social media that's a hundred percent it people are getting their news from social media instead of from one agreed upon source like they did in the past. And yeah, in the past there were uh, partisan media institutions. The issue is now social media has separated us from a cultural and political perspective and exposed uh, the extremes of both sides so evidently that it is drastically polarizing the bases of both parties and doing so in a way that makes both parties feel like it, if they don't win in the battle and the political battle that we're experiencing now, that it will be utter dystopia for them. And to some extent, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a progressive. I think there, that if conservatives get control, it will be absolutely terrible. So like, maybe I'm guilty of that as well, but it's kind of for my perception, that is the truth. I, I, either way, that is just a, a, a factual claim that, that that is what is kind of explaining the rise in polarization. I mean, I think both sides think that the other side just wants to destroy America. Yeah. That's kind of my point. But I, my point is that, yes, but one side is right. Yeah, I think it's – yeah, you're always going to think your side is right. Yeah. Well, you're, but that's – No, no, no I agree. Always, I'm yes. the – yes, yes. I'm right, right, no, I, it's not like I am the radical side that's being exposed by polarization. Yes. Like, I'm not – like, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this here. Like, is polarization always inherently bad? Um, like no, 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 no. So polarization can be uh, democratic in the sense that it becomes way easier to distinguish between the two parties. Like in a non-polarized era, let's say nineties, uh, early nineties, early two thousands, candidates could get away without being held accountable. Like there, there was more of an elite consensus controlling Washington because the parties did not have an incentive to kind of run against each other. Well. There wasn't as much ideological polarization between the parties, and thus there was not as much accountability towards that. I guess. All right, Asher. I think um, what you said about social media taking away every single side uh, using the same source for media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even think it's that. I think it's you know, there's it's okay to have different sources of media from different people on Twitter, 
but we've just seen this wave of misinformation and disinformation that's really causing problems. Yeah. So does there need to be more accountability in the media? That's 100% right. I, I, I agree. I think also like when I say people are more likely to take from partisan news sources, they also are more likely to take from conspiratorial news sources that spread disinformation. So it's like people, instead of reading their local newspaper that ha- has an obligation and incentive to provide both sides, are now going to like hear from people like Alex Jones, who's just spewing absolute nonsense. I mean, or they'll hear from less uh, conspiratorial uh, news institutions that are still spreading disinformation like Newsmax or OAN, which are two like kind of the far right alternatives to Fox, which I didn't know was going to happen, but they, they did. Um, anyway, so yes, I agree with that. Uh, the second part I wanted to oh, the second thing I wanted to say, which is how to solve the issue of disinformation. I don't know. Uh, social media is a very new thing. Like, I don't think people account for how significant the move to social media is and how we communicate in our daily lives. And I know that kind of sounds cliche, but like people have not been this this disconnected and this quickly connected in the history of humanity ever. And so it's bringing a lot of new dangers in the world that we kind of as a community, eh, well, not as a community, as as a species, have not figured out how to control and grapple with. So I like I don't know what the solution is to disinformation, but I know that as until we can find one, we're in a lot and of trouble. Do you think there it needs to be more regulated from a legal perspective? That could be an alternative. I don't know how you regulate disinformation though without kind of creating the problems. Because for example, Biden launched this disinformation board and it was just mocked and rightly so. Like I don't know what they think like Biden saying he disagrees with disinformation and trying to do something about it is not going to solve the problem because these disinformation, these conspiratorial people believe that already believe that Biden is like a deranged lizard. So it's hard, kind of hard for you to convince them that you're not by just saying that you're not, you know, it's like, we've got to find a way to control it in the first place to some extent. Like once you get on that conspiratorial train, it's almost too late. Yeah. And one example that, I personally see a lot is it'll be like short little clips of Joe Biden doing something and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. But it's like a seven second clip. Yeah. And when you look at it in like the actual context of what's happening, like it makes perfect sense. The scariest thing in this, this swaps. Oh, you continue. Well, yeah. And I'm just saying, like, I think like good amount of Republicans most like legitimately think that the president is not are the president yeah, functionally yeah. Um, I mean, the, uh, the scarier aspect of this is and this is what will really be used by Russia, Hungary and the United States as we kind of slide into fake democracy which is really what it is because it resembles democracy in every sense of the word and it's honestly kind of hard to not look at it and say it is a democracy but you dig in deeper you realize it's not and part of that is a manipulation of information that Russia does immensely the hungry does and at some extent I think in the future of the United States will and some of the ways they can do this are literally by by making videos look like they're real when they're not they can make politicians look like they've said things that they haven't or and as Reed explained the much less insidious version of this that can still pro- cause problems is that they can take clips of politicians completely out of context and just get them to permeate social media without being held accountable because we do not have an agreed upon source for facts and information yeah I think that's I think everybody said things that are functionally true, which is that like social media obviously creates like a lot of disinformation and that there's a lot of like 
issues with that sort of polarized media world. I'm also incredibly skeptical. Like, I think, and this is where you'll see me. Like, I mean, I, I'm obviously an example of like social media, like pushing people to be more on like one side of the politics. And like, if you're, and I have like more outside opinions, like, can we talk about George H.W. Bush or something? Like, it sounds kind of weird sometimes. Um, like, I, I mean, I know what my opinions sound like. Like, <laughs> The, the, the point this gets to is that, like, I don't think it's always bad to allow for more information to be presented. Obviously, I think the social media gives us too much information. Like, we're too able to see the whole world in a way that's, like, yeah. probably extremely problematic in creating, like, stable worldviews and stable understandings of your own being. But, like, beyond that, I think you also need to recognize sort of... A, like, I think people downplay, like, long-running conservative, like, conservative and just, like, general conspiracy conspiracy culture. Like, go back to the John Birch Society. Like, these yeah, people think that, like, new. literally every liberal was, like, a f- communist. Like, they were, like, trying to impeach Earl Warren of the Warren Corp, which we talked about earlier in this podcast. Like, lots of just, like, out- crazy out there stuff. Look at Lyndon LaRouche, who is a crazy perennial candidate that people liked for a very long time. He was a total conspiracy nut who thought the Bank of London was controlling everything. <laughs> um, like he's a hilarious guy. Look at It's just like nonsense. And I think that you have this, this long-running sort of disinformation polarization that obviously social media has accelerated. And I don't think there's like a reasonable solution to that beyond, like honestly, to some extent the best solution is that liberals are a lot better at creating their own Fox News. Like Fox News is the most watched thing in America. Like um, Tucker Carlson has so many more viewerships than his, than his like comparisons like the idea that Fox News is not the mainstream media and the main source of media is like what conservatives want to believe because they want to be the victims liberals have done a much worse job at articulating their own media vision in my opinion even though they've tried with like MSNBC and having like like or even what I tend to read more is just things like Jacobin like you, you get like a further like less coherent media structures that I think are worse at effectively telling a convincing narrative to American people, which is probably necessary in a disinformation world. Yeah. I will want to add one thing, which is that social media has not only accelerated kind of tendencies on the far right to be conspiratorial, but it's changed fundamentally how they behave. The John Birch Society, as Ryan cited, kind of a famous instance of right-wing conspiracy theory, nut jobness in American history. That was a incredibly top-down organization. There was like there was membership, and you were kind of handed a pamphlet that said what you wanted to believe. I don't actually know how the official communication went, but I that is functionally uh, yeah. how how it happened. The, yeah, the idea exactly. Um, but today you see something completely different. The QAnon conspiracy theory movement ish group sort of thing. It it had it was started by this you know person named Q who posted online, but it's taken on a life of its own. It kind of spawns new conspiracy theories from a grassroots level, kind of out of nowhere. And that is what makes it even more insidious and more dangerous because now we kind of have this empowered conspiratorial movement that is just running amok and yeah. Deeply political. How how much of this do you think started from Trump Trump coining the term fake news and not not just the term fake news to talk about disinformation, which is like sort of the meaning it's um morphed into yeah it's, it's just almost like a common term at this point but like I, he, he started it attacking what were previously very legitimate um, news organizations from all sides yeah I mean I think what you see is there's a few things here and there's always this debate over like Trump there's sort of very cliche to discuss Trump in like immunological terms but you sort of this idea that Trump is like what was that word immunological um yeah, you're right I mean I don't want to I'm just getting I don't like, want to say like 
Uh, no, you, this, you all, were, this all comes from you Trump, weren't right? doing that. Right. My point is like, yeah, I was about to use a cliche, like the idea that Trump is a disease. Like, I don't think that like it's Trump is the symptom, not the virus. Well, but Trump, it, it, it all, Trump is a stand in for the right wing movement around. Trump, I mean, I think Trumpism. to some extent. And so I think that like you can say that like, oh, Trump's a symptom, not the disease. But also the, the existence of the right wing movement. And kind of the acceleration of that, which Trump I mean, Trump obviously accelerated it, but I think like, and this is maybe just more the way I view the world. Like, I think ultimately, like a figure inevitably was coming to where Trump was coming because society was increasingly like the reality. Like, you can't have a single source of media and have it continue to be trusted after yeah. you've put us into the Iraq War, put us into the Afghanistan War, had the biggest recession in, since ever, only seen jobs go away and material conditions combine, and everybody's telling us it's okay, it's all right. Like, it's not. It's obviously not. Like, what are we, like, so when you have that, obviously somebody like Trump arises, obviously people are ready to believe that all media is false and that the only true thing is the guy who's trying to stop satanic pedophiles within the government, which Trump obviously, he's not doing. Look into his connections with like Jeffrey Epstein and the lawsuit battled by a 14, 15 year old girl. Uh, like the, the, these sort of things you see ultimately like are, are examples of how this sort of development was an inevitable issue when you have such a like you go from neoliberal unipolarity effectively within politics to the systems collapsing what do they do like this is the reaction people are going to have and i think when you hear me talk like i talk about like in my view like the biggest way to address this is a trying and probably failing quite frankly to focus politics on material issues material conditions this sort of idea that politics instead of culture and sort of allowing that shift to return to where you saw like deindustrialization push towards culture as the main form of political expression especially under the neoliberal consensus of the 90s and 2000s mm-hmm. like it's sort of trying to break down that paradigm is the most important way to sort yeah. of combating this cycle of disinformation and anti-liberalism. And what's so bad kind of about the neoliberal consensus that, that the elite consensus that happened in the 1990s in Washington was that it kind of broke down the ability of things like Congress, the presidency, the Supreme Court to respond to public opinion. And when the government is not responding to political movements, people kind of rightly assume that Congress is an ineffective political actor and therefore no longer care about what your plan is to uh, kind of expand healthcare or provide economic security because they don't believe you can implement it. And so they kind of, they, I mean, it's kind of the, the voting public in general will shift their focus to cultural battles where, uh, you know, it doesn't really, it's not super relevant. Um, what your plan is, is just kind of who you stand for. And so, you know, kind of as uh, Congress and Washington became less responsive to public opinion on economic questions, on domestic policy questions, the shift, it resulted in a shift to cultural war issues. Yeah, I think we both agree. It's sort of attempting to address, I think, the culture war effectively. And I think is where I think this is the point where we can leave off. Like the main focus needs to be like, so much of politics is wrong. It's focused on culture. There's like that's not a strong order. Like this is a this is sort of what's led up under the neo like under neoliberalism, and any attempt to address that is probably the necessary thing to correct the current system. That concludes this episode of 440 Views from the Hill. Stay tuned for the next season of the podcast next year with new hosts. Uh, we would like to give special thanks to Mr. Joshua Clark for sponsoring this independent study, uh, and Jack Keller for our theme music. Thanks for listening and. See you next time.